Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everyone, you're listening to Living the Dream and you're joined with me, Dave, here today. And I'm pretty excited because I'm chatting with Keir Milburn all the way from Leeds. Keir, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Dave. I was thinking, um, actually, I think I've been, for those that don't know your work, and they should, uh, I think I've been reading you for about 20 years. So you used to be in Class War, is that correct? You're in the Leeds Mayday Group in the Free Association and now are in Plan C. Yeah, that's my... Does that sound really... I hope that's not too creepy that someone on the other side of the world is just going, (laughs) hey, this is what your political biography of the last 20 years is. No, no, yeah, that's um, that's sort of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a continuous sort of line in in that, uh, as in you know, Leeds Mayday and, Group came out of of trying to dissolve class war. We sort of tried to dissolve yeah, it in '96 so, or something. Yeah, because you were involved. I think that the best thing that I, the thing that I liked the most that <clears> it was ever associated with class war was the final issue um, that didn't end up being the final issue. But that was uh, you were involved in that, right? Yeah, of, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, quite a lot of people who are involved in it, but yeah, yeah. And. I mean, quite quite a lot of my my politics has been. It started off with like an, a sort of. I started off as an anarchist, you know, and a sort of you know quite influenced by anarcho punk. <laughs> uh, and then my first main movement was uh, the the anti poll tax movement, and out of that um, we formed Lee's Class War as an attempt to get organised, basically. Because oh, really? Yeah. Class War had been going since since eighty six, but it had a sort of. Uh, we might call it a turn to the serious <laughs> after the anti poll tax movement. Yeah, in fact, cause I, I'm involved in another project, a podcast called ACFM, which in which which comes out of like you know acid communism, which was Mark Fisher's thing, and we've talked a bit. We're going to do a show about that moment in in 1989, 90 to 91 or 92 or something like that as a as a lost acid communist moment, basically. <laughs> basically, uh, the a- a- acid house dance music was going on, and then we had this really big movement in the UK called the Interpol Tax Movement, which was we all thought was like the new model for struggle. You know, it was community-based organising, you know, often on a street-to-street basis. Uh, and now uh, we just spent the next few years looking for the next poll tax but yeah, like what you don't realise is, you know, there's something else going on at the time. So like 89 is the collapse of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And what goes along with that is they call it the great doubling of the of the global labour force. So the amount of labour open to, to global capital doubled in about two and a half to two and a half to three years, which tanks the price of labour, which tanks the negotiating position of labour, which basically finishes off the left you know, right up until probably 1999 or something like that, really, until 2008. So, yeah. <laughs> but don't, don't you have some kind of continuation, though, in, in that, that early anti-criminal justice bill stuff that was going on in the UK? Yeah, there is, there's a, there is a continuity, yeah, yeah, that goes straight through. Think about, sit down and think, how do we actually change the world in, in, a, in a direction we want it to go? Mm. You know, 
that that was basically off the cards. Until not, 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 at, not at the time. We we sort of thought we were doing that. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you um, always do, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And we, um, you know, we were doing what we could do in the in in the space of possibility that was open to us. You know. Yeah, uh, but, I don't don't you think sometimes the reverse is true as well? That some of the things you're doing that that uh, don't seem so important in retrospect, you go, oh, that was the most important part of our activity. Yeah, give us an example of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, put, I'm on the spot now. Um, well, I guess like maybe the more of the kind of relationship building stuff or sometimes, you know, like, um, you know, during the ultra globalization movement, like it wasn't the, the summits that was the big thing. It was the attempts to kind of apply those locally, right? While all the excitement was fo- was focused on the summit protests. And I know I, we I was in Wollongong at the time and I was reading the stuff that you and your comrades in the Free Association were writing that was really inspiring. But probably what has had the long-term effect was the things that we did on the ground in Wollongong um, rather than attending like the big events, as amazing as they were. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated one. Isn't it? So around about that time, perhaps a little bit after when the free association we, we we got involved in a magazine called turbulence around 2005 i think set up a magazine called turbulence and one of the first things we wrote was um you know an article called what does it mean to win <laughs> in that like sometimes when you when you win you don't notice you've won and we were using the example of the collapse of like gat talks etc more or less mm. straight straight after after um Seattle in 1999 you know basically when the the opening demand of that movement had been won straight away uh uh, but as it turned out that you know that that basically wasn't what we were really after Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we were you know so the horizon was trying to move on all of the time um yeah yeah I I guess and I guess one of the reasons you know we're having this conversation is partly um because I want to I've wanted to have a chat with you for a while and also coming out from a conversation um, that happened on Twitter, of all places, but has to do with the attempts that you've been making, I guess, to not just think, but relate to what's going on in the UK around Corbyn and the revitalised radicalism of the Labour Party. And I guess, like, for me, like, there's obviously something happening that's going on electorally amongst the left. And a, a lot of that, um, is kind of, you know, revivified social democracy. But I think what you're trying to do is go, well, how do, you know, communists, those who want to abolish the state and capitalist social relations, relate to this? And for me, that's a, that's a real puzzle because I don't want to just be some kind of, like, grumpy, ultra-left abstentionist. And I don't want to just collapse into what's happening electorally either. So it's hard to kind of get my head around. But you wrote a piece before Corbyn was really even a phenomenon, I think in 2013, around the directional demands and the transnational strike. And you start that piece by saying, look, the, the left is kind of in crisis. You know, the, the, the wave of, of occupations in the squares have happened and that wave has receded and we don't really know what to do. Could you kind of maybe talk about how standing that standing that conjunction and what that meant for your attempt to try to develop strategy? Yeah, so it was that article was called um, "On Social Strikes and Directional Demands." Uh, so yeah, and and, and the, the whole idea of this social strike was to try to look at the struggles that were going on and try to try to think about what that meant for the direction of future struggle. 
So ba- basically, you know, underneath it all, I'm very influenced by uh, by uh, autonomous Marxism. Basically, I've sort of been influenced by that since the early early nineties. Um, and my take on on that the, the central the central sort of component of that theory is class composition analysis. Um, do, you, do you mind if I get like a little bit technical into all of that shit? No, I would, I would really. <laughs> I like bet you love it. Yeah. I'd love it. <laughs> well, the basic distinctions between like the technical composition and the political composition of the class, and the whole idea of that is it goes you you know that changes. You have different sort of changes, and it can change in wave like patterns. Uh, you know, so it gets developed in Italy in the late fifties, uh, early sixties, and they're trying to map like well they're trying to map a real a particular problem which is you know there's all these there's a new f- types of struggle emerging sort of wildcat strikes strikes a you know antagonism against the managers that their own and um, the managers but also their own trade union officials right these new, these workers in the factories in northern italy and so people are working well, what the fuck's going on you know why why is struggle not behaving the way we thought it would and the key to that there was to, to, to look back the, what they call the technical composition, which is you know how how work is done and how life around work, you know, has changed, etc. So there's this sort of the the way this is normally done is that you you know you think right the technical composition has changed now how has that influenced the political composition, right? So the political expressions that come out of this, I actually think it goes the other way. I think what normally yeah. happens is you notice that something's changed in the political composition. Then you look back and think, well, what is it that's that's changed in this moment? What you know, what are the things which are influencing this structure of uh, of uh, this structure of struggle? So you look back to the sort of technical composition, and from there you can look forward to the political composition. But that's not a; it's like more of a project than a diagnosis. That you know, what I mean, you can see t- trends, and you think, right, how can we accelerate those trends? How can we? How what can we do with those trends? So it's a way of mapping political possibility. In a way. So basically, that's what the social strike was for me. So we were sort of noticing, and it's still really, really relevant now. You're noticing like what what forms of, of of struggle are emerging, which are new and innovative, and 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 sort of you know don't make a lot of sense. So one of those would be um, the whole series of political strikes that are going on. So the, the, there's a women's strike on Friday. We can have them, um, you know, assemblies here in Leeds. Uh, they've been very, very big in certain countries in Poland, Argentina, and Spain. In America, actually, last last year they were it was relatively prominent. Uh, so, you, and then there's this climate, you know, the kids' climate strike. As another example of this, the strike is a political strike uh, through the whole of society or a, or a particular section of society. But then, it, then the other thing we were noticing was, you know, if you look at the 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 other sectors that were in struggle or going on strike, it tended to be work around social reproductive work teachers are going on strike <laughs> university lecturers are going on strike we had a strike in the uk last year uh you know the junior doctors was a big strike in the uk a couple of years ago so it was one of those where we sort of like you notice what's going on you try to think about well what's changing in the technical composition and you try to think of projects in which you can accelerate that so that was the sort of social strike um side of that and the directional demands bit was trying to trying to think about well what what would be like what what forms of of political demand would go along with those with those sort of social strikes right and so we were thinking of directional demands in uh, as as 
demands which would move you in a, 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 a in a in this particular so they're not demands they're not sort of like uh what we might call um uh, ultimate demands or something like that right which not would be full communism now not full communism now right not even no borders actually no borders no borders gives you a sort of horizon we like at certain points we've talked about horizons you know red horizons so you have demands which are horizons we must get there we must get to a state uh, to a, to a, a situation in which there are no borders right um but the directional part of that is you know how, how can you start from what's possible what what is politically and socially possible now and move it in a direction towards the horizon um but not all not all of the way with something like that i'd sort of say so that's the direction in directional demands it moves us in a particular direction but once you get there you have to then reassess and we, you know that like you know events come along which reshape uh, political possibility uh, yeah I, I remember when when i read that article there were, you know i guess in the preceding period starting from 2008 when there'd been the riots in Greece and then the yeah. development of, of the squares, I guess English language communist theory was really talking about the idea that, you know, you needed to focus on communization and what defined the contemporary composition of capitalism now that demands were impossible. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, reading stuff about Greece where it would say it was the fact that they made no demands showed the radicality of the movement and also that structurally it was impossible for struggles to make demands within capitalism because capitalism couldn't respond to them. And I think friends and comrades working in China made a similar kind of argument about strikes in China, that, that um, they didn't make demands. And even, I guess, you know, some of the criticism of Occupy Wall Street was that no demands arose from Occupy Wall Street. You know, that was a criticism from maybe more conservative, more Keynesian figures. When you were doing this work, did you, on writing that article, were you engaging in that debate in some ways? And what do you kind of think about that idea that radicality is determined by the fact that demands can't be made and that capitalism in this moment doesn't have the capacity to deal with demands? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm relatively skeptical about that, about the idea that it can't deliver demands. I, my, my my real problem with uh, communization theory is basically, you know, it it is it's re, it it relies for its its notion of radicality on a sort of teleological sense of history, which is incredibly old fashioned. I got, I'm I'm sort of sympathetic to it for bio, biographical reasons, right? My dad was in a, a libertarian group called libertarian socialist group called solidarity oh really yeah in the, in the night late 60s early 70s oh, that's such an influential group you know i can't yeah. believe how often i he return was, to he that was as a, we see it statement yeah 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 totally yeah so that's my one of my you know i basically my biography is i got into punk <laughs> started singing anarchy in the uk and my dad gave me all of his old solidarity um <laughs> leaf pamphlets basically which i've still got in a folder sat i can see it over over there my little um little office and in fact he was in a, he was in a group he was in swansea solidarity group with ian bone who then went on to form class war <laughs> uh, and so ian bone was like a, a a family friend when i was a little little boy um that's amazing <laughs> so basically that solidarity are the they're like the english wing of um socialism or barbary basically which is castoriadis 
you know, and their 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 notion was, their notion was, um, well, you know, in some ways that they're, they're totally, totally, totally out of time. You know, they ba- they they had this idea that you know capitalism had solved the problem of poverty, uh, and so we needed a different idea about class. Basically, there was going to be no immiseration, which is why it's totally out of time. <laughs> it seems ridiculous now. Uh, but this is a post-war sort but of it, period. But believable in that moment, right? Yeah, believable in that moment, yeah. And so they had these things, you know, about, about order givers and order takers, also completely, you know, because of ref- reforms of um, management, etc. You know, just totally out of the thing, out of time. But their thing is was, you know, their model, their method, their idea of, 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 um, of revolutionary transition was councilism, right? So that there was one eternal and universal form of revolutionary organization and that was the workers council uh, autonomism actually develops as a critique of councilism it says councilism is tied to a particular type of of um of form of work and, and like a, you know the sort of like hegemonic worker the professional worker the worker who has a really good understanding of the the whole um production process and therefore could just take over the factory run it um, run it just as a workers' council. So autonomism comes about by saying, "Well, that that's that's gone. Now we have the mass workplace. People, you know, they they only do one task. They have no idea of the overall structure of the work, etc. In fact, they have they and they don't have professional pride in their work. They hate work. They want to refuse work. <laughs> and communization. So, but you could say autonomism comes is one thing that comes out of that a critique, which actually predates socialism or barbaries or at least solidarity's claim on it um uh, so autonomism is one thing that comes out of that sort of councilist model and communization theory is the thing that comes out of the other side of it right um so communization theory is you know you can't just take over the factories because they already got capital you know Except I'm not going to try and do communization theory, but like the the sense of radicality is that that like history moves in a in a certain direction, right? and you have these firm um, periods which are like iron iron laws basically, and now we're in a period where the you know where where you know pr- the programmatic left uh, is impossible, etc. Uh, autonomism is it, it, you know autonomism moves in a, in a very different way it says there are waves there are waves but those what those waves are waves of struggle and they're not determined and they could go in different ways um uh, yeah. yeah and so you don't you, autonomism doesn't rely on a sort of teleology of the working class of the chosen people and they are moving towards a predetermined end basically yeah which means it means it's a much more up in the air sort of politics do you know what i mean yeah, no, no, I do, because one of the things I've been thinking about is that when I was more kind of confidently ultra left, like, I guess I can't like the way I think about it now is I, I almost imagined like within the working class communism existed like some kind of coiled spring. Yeah. And all you needed to do was to kind of, you know, struggle would inevitably mean that this coiled spring would emerge. Yeah. So all, all you had to do was make sure that there were the right forms of struggle and to keep the recuperators at bay. And then that would happen. And now I think the distance between like the class in itself and the class for itself is probably pretty big. And that people's journey to make sense and transform the world is a lot more complicated. And it's like, you know, part of that is seeing 
the power that things that I would consider social democratic demands have to connect with people and in a really interesting way like I was you know doing some kind of depoliticized community group stuff with you know a guy that I just met and we're in the car and he's like oh what do you think about UBI I think that's a really good idea you know and it's like well he's that it, it it's connecting where people are at, you know, far more than just this idea there's this struggle and people will be spontaneously propelled in that direction. And that's making me want to kind of think about, well, how do you relate to what's going on without just collapsing into it as well? Because I think those older ultra-left um, critiques of reformism are still really valid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think, you're, I think you hit the nail on the head. So... I, um, it, all, all sort of sets of sets of theories, or or, or worldviews, you know, or political worldviews, will say that right. They revolve around you know a key problem, like a key problem, which is like the sandbox from which they then get develop their model of the world. And so you know the ultra left model is how do we prevent recuperation? You know, it's like the post sixty eight situationist sort of idea. Things would have been fine if it weren't for those damn communist party guys, right? yeah and so like the main problem therefore is how do we prevent recuperation i just don't think that's the main problem that faces us do you know what i mean uh in fact you know i think it's it's more useful to think about like to be a bit more materialist about it you know what what is it what is it about people's lives which make them think that only a certain frame of politics is possible you know what is it like what materially makes that happen you know, I'm really interested in the moments when that breaks down, and that can break down really, really, really quickly. Uh, so, when in a free association, we, we we were really interested in this idea of moments of excess, which is our take on sort of events. You know, the critical theory idea of the event where you have a sort of rupture in society's sense making. That we wrote, we had a we wrote a book which is a collection of articles called Moments of Excess. I'm still not satisfied with the way I understand those moments because, you know. The, the, because the rest of my understanding of politics is very materialist about you know okay well, we can see how you know the you know institutional reform has you know helps to construct p- people's sense of possibility in this particular way uh, and uh, you know so I suppose my politics is this weird mix of <laughs> of um, you know you can see how if if institutional reform um, if institutional reform ha- you know the institutions that we interact with you know the debt relations that we're caught in if all of those influence the way we think about the future and what's what's viable in the future you know then you can see how a sort of social democratic i'm losing this loosely i mean this is probably much more radical than the social democracy that we're we're used to but you know a sort of social democratic reform of reforms of institutions could have an effect on that right i think you can have an effect on that. but i'm also interested in the or, or, or you know my politics is based around the idea that in fact you can have you know these things which this 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 limited sense of what is possible right can um uh, collapse incredibly quickly for lots of people and then you're into a very new you know uh space of possibility so is how that, you put those two together what, i don't know dave I'm hoping is you that what you considered <laughs> is that what you considered the directional demand was about about like connecting to things that are going on in people's lives now so it's it's not bullshit like you genuinely want to win it right it's not yeah. a, transitional demand in the Trotskyer sense where you get people to fight for things they lose and that loss is going to radicalise them. I've always thought that that's just total bullshit. 
but this is the idea that you struggle over things that are winnable within the current frame and you hope that winning them shifts what people think you can then do next. Is, is that the way to understand it? Yes. But I'd, I'd go a little bit further than that and I'd say, um, um, you know, the autonomy in autonomism is, is, is working class autonomy from capital. And so the way you think about that is, you know, our lives are determined by... Uh, by by the capital's drive, the drive of capitalism to basically to reproduce itself and expand, right? You know that shapes that sh- that shapes our lives in all sorts of ways. You know, shapes the institutions we're involved in, shapes the the, the structure of our lives, shapes the, the you know the th- the first thing we think of when we get up in the morning, you know. But you can have more or less autonomy from that. Your life being determined by capital, right? Uh, and the more autonomy you have from that, the more space you have um, to try to think of, think of a different sort of life and try to construct a different sort of life. Uh, and I would say that um, uh, when you look back at sort of like for, for certain sections of, 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 of the world in the sort of post-war social democratic period, you can see that there was, you know, a, a higher level of autonomy than you would have in the high neoliberal period in which we were both trying to foment struggle in the ni- in the 90s etc so my attitude to like my attitude towards social democracy is probably like a Kalekian one um, so this 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 theorist I think it's in the like 1930s Kalecki writes this article the problem of full employment have you ever yeah, come across maybe that maybe early 40s yeah it's yeah. it's amazing I think piece, it's early right? I think it's like 39 30, anyway Okay. not important is it <laughs> yeah but so, so, and, and you know it's this it's this i'm not okay the, the you know the crude the crude bit is this is um you know there's a problem with having full employment right and that is you know the, the more you are the more a person who lives in capital uh within capitalism right the the less like if if they face the fact that if they do not go to work <clears throat> And then when at work, do what the manager says or do what the boss says. You know, if they do not do that, then they then they will be out on the streets and destitute. Right? That is the the you know that is the chief disciplining mechanism of capitalism, right? And so you know, if you have some sort of measure of distance from that, if you have some sort of like distance from uh, from destitution, i.e., some sort of welfare state. <clears throat> Then there tends to be this sort of an almost automatic uh, tendency for people to think, well, okay, uh, uh, okay, you know, uh, what is it that I actually want to do, basically? And that's sort of how I see a lot of the struggles of the '60s and late 1970s. Uh, a lot of those, lot of those struggles were people who were were by sec- sections of the of the world and sections of uh, the population who were excluded from that quite nice, cozy deal. Right, so it's a struggle of, uh, well, women, uh, you know, women, anti-colonial struggles, African American struggles in the U.S. Obviously, right, all of these people who'd been excluded had a shitty part in that post-war post-war deal. But on top of that, as well, was people who were included who'd had some sort of suspension, saying, "Well, we basically want more, and we basically want more than capital can can offer us." And so, the nineteen seventies for me was this moment of. Like you know, profitability very low. 
uh, wage demands uh, are unsustainably high if you're going to be in capitalism. So you reach a point of decision. You either go beyond capitalism or you have a retrenchment back to you know, a form of capitalism which uh, destroys a lot of that autonomy that had been built up. And that's why it's how and I see the 1970s, basically. And, and that's what we can, if we're going to use the term neoliberalism, yeah. you know, is the attempt to reimpose that discipline yeah. through the imposition of unemployment. Yeah. And I think it's one of the, the things that um, is kind of hard often for, people, for, for the Australian left to understand that the rise of unemployment in the late 70s and early 80s wasn't the end of work, but the reimposition of yeah, work. Yeah. And it's also really interesting, when you, and I think we can probably connect this back to the present, is you know, for Australia in that moment, it was the inability to see a world beyond capitalism that really meant that it was the Labor Party in Australia that institu instituted ne uh, neoliberalism through the accord. Yeah. And many people thought they were going to get Sweden, right? But they just ended up getting shafted. So I think, um, you know, maybe I'd be interested to, to hear how you see, like, this kind of strategy directly connecting with our moment, you know, the moment after the squares and the return of electoralism. Yeah. Uh, well, um, yeah, okay. They're not easy questions, I know. No, no, but, I mean, it's just that you have to set that up. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, basically... No, no, but you have to set it up as in, like... Um, I would say this, right, that like we, you know, I've been involved in all all sorts of movements, you know, you know, um, you know, trying to get as much space as possible, you know, trying to uh, to do what can be done, you know, the, so the anti-globalisation movement at the turn of the century, that turned into the, to the climate justice movement in the UK here, in which I had a sort of like critical participation, I participated, but I was also trying to introduce anti-work politics into it, um, but um you know, to well, in fact, I remember in like the, I remember when I first realised that there was a sort of major a major crisis coming up along was in two thousand and six, and I was at a climate camp in Heathrow, I think it was, with an old friend from the class war days, uh, Glyn Harris. We sat sat down, and he was going, "Look, look, you know, this is really big housing crisis in uh, in the US. You know, I think we could be on the verge of like one of these epochal crises." Uh, and then I remember being, you know, a couple of years later at one of these climate camp gatherings where people are, you know, talking about, you know, what, what to be done. And basically the, the prize knowledge there is all talking about parts per million carbon in the, in the atmosphere. And I'm trying to say, look, like, you know, this economic crisis is going to change everything, right? It's going to completely change what is possible to do. And nobody was interested. Oh, they, these things come along all the time, etc. They couldn't get themselves out of the out of the politics that they would be what they were involved with you know the climate camp rumbles on for another couple of days but another couple of years but it gets destroyed by two things one of which is like the climate the, the economic crisis is the thing that's dominating people's lives and so the climate crisis goes to the background but the other thing they come across is that they basically have no strategy i say they we have no strategy for actually dealing with a problem of climate change on that level and you realize in fact what you're doing is militant lobbying of a whole series of institutions who have fucking no interest in dealing with this problem, uh, uh, who aren't all in it together, uh, in which case, you know, that that whole drive is over. Do you know what I mean? Uh, luckily, just at that point in the UK, 
we have the student movement kickoff here, which was like a whole series of occupations, weekly demonstrations that ended up on in riots, etc. Uh, that goes. That's like one of the first instances that kicks off into the the whole wave, 2011 wave of riots and protests, which we should probably put in the same sort of same sort of realm that we talk about. You know, 68, like not on the same, not not quite at the same level as 68, but like a worldwide circulation of struggles, which basically take very, very, very similar political forms, right? And that's that's a moment of excess, what we call a moment of excess. It's like this wave of wave of very, very similar forms emerging in very, very different contexts all around the world, basically. You know, that's something that you have to take account for. So, you know, perhaps you would have gone and said, well, all right, something's happening in the political composition. Um, but that, you know, and basically, so the horizontalist politics that had been sort of pioneered uh, um, in the sort of anti-globalization cycle, you know, they become hegemonic and tried out on a level way beyond anybody could ever possibly have, have imagined and basically they failed right <laughs> they collapsed under their own under their own weight uh, and so it was sort of like an almost an inevitable thing that people then tried did a, did, a, did a sort of like electoral turn which probably would say starts around 2014 perhaps a little bit earlier perhaps a bit later like there's a reason why you know basically you can have 2011 in the same you know like uh, uh, basically a whole generation of people adopt the same forms all around the world it, you can't do that in electoral politics because electoral cycles are differently so it sort of plays out in a different way but there's no doubt that you know there's this direct turn to electoral politics to try to solve the problems that weren't solvable in this sort of horizontalist moment but like personally if you look around I, at the forms that it takes i don't think it takes the form of apostasy right it doesn't take the form of rejection of everything that went before it takes the form of okay we've reached the limits of this attempt to get things changed the 2011 attempt to get things changed now we're going to try and address that uh, 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 in a different sphere you know so it's trying to un uh, to, to unfold the, the same politics in a different sphere which is the electoral sphere and so that obviously the best example of that is spain right where where that where the, where you know in uh, where where the, the the 2011 wave was biggest and strongest and went deepest basically, you know they had a couple of years of try of of like autonomous social movements, uh, the the platform of, you know the housing struggles the power the platform for those affected by mortgages etc. Uh, had lots of successes but basically the Spanish government responds to all of that by basically making protest illegal. And uh, so they say, right, we can't win. We can't win on this realm alone. We must win on the electoral realm. You know, the, that's, you that's sort of how that's sort of how I see that 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 sort of thing pan out. Yeah. You know, do you have a diagnosis of why his horizontalism failed? Um, yeah, because that seems pretty <laughs> that seems pretty important. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I mean, I mean, and I'll relate it to this. Uh, to, to sort of like class composition analysis i should say actually i've got a book coming out at the end of the month <laughs> called generation left so a lot of these arguments are in that in that book um so and, and i think it's a generational problem this a problem with generational inheritance right in that like um the the the, the, the question before we we should ask before why did horizontalism fail is, is why was it tried out right? and it was tried out right for for basically two reasons one there was a generation before who, who were the anti-globalization generation who thought that they had solved the problem of 
political organization, revolutionary organization. Yeah, okay. It had a form. You know, the Council of Communists thought that they'd solved the problem of revolutionary organization. It had a form and it was yeah. universally applicable. It turned out that that was only applicable with a certain composition. Uh, it's this, you know, the it's the same with the horizontalists thought that we, you know, and I was I was uh, caught up in horizontalism. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, we thought we'd solved the world's problems. It was we needed to bat off to, to protect the, the the natural horizontalism of people from the from the verticalists, <laughs> horizontal and verticalists. In fact, diagonalism was a big thing in the <laughs> 2010 in the um, climate justice movement. Um, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, goodness. yeah. Because they'd reached this pro this problem, right? They'd reached this problem, and it came to a head in 2010 where there was this big um, climate meeting. You know, the COP. I think it was the COP 15 yeah. in Copenhagen, and like you realise that what you're doing is you're lobbying governments and intergovernmental agencies and like you know we had some friends who were inside who were representing sort of anyway anyway so that was the diagonalism which was you know horizontalism and verticalism and so there was you know by the time we get to 2011 there was no vertical there was no diagonalism it was horizontalism uh you know and but it took off horizontalism took off because it it accorded with the spontaneous politics of people who were reacting to 2008 basically which was let's get rid of them all um, you know, whoever you vote for, you get the same policies. Um, but also, you know, that sense of a sort of quite an individualist sense of agency, um, which is then, which is sort of searching for a collectivist form. Do you know what I mean? Uh, mm. Yeah, so that's, that's why that's why horizontalism took off. Why it failed was because um, it couldn't it couldn't deal with. You know these uh, institutions which are operating on a realm above the city square. Do you know what I mean? It perhaps yeah. it perhaps it could have taken on the city. And in fact, if you look at if you look at Spain, you know, six out of the seven biggest cities are run by citizens' assemblies, which have direct roots in the squares. Um, but like, you can't deal with the national level, and you can't deal with the transnational level. That's what fucked the. That's what fucked the um, climate justice movement. You know, it was there was a, a, a an international global level at which you couldn't even operate at let alone you know think about how to exercise power in um so i think that's why horizontalism but, failed but it also failed because it, it it's not a form of organization that can operate beyond it doesn't scale basically it can only scale to a certain level yeah. and then it's, it collapses have you read um phil neal's book hinterland at all uh no what i know the name yeah, it's, it's yeah it's really amazing it's a it's a really amazing book um but you know, part of like, there's a lot that's really fantastic about it. But you know, he's kind of coming out of, um, oh, I think it's the maybe the Oakland or one of the West Coast yeah. cities experiences. And one of the observations that the book makes, again going back to composition, is well, you know, w w what function does the center of a city play in contemporary capitalism in terms of either the production or circulation of commodities? Yeah. Like a city square is relatively irrelevant, you know. It does have some kind of impact on, on uh, I guess, kind of governance and the maintenance of an ideology of order. But it's not actually the nodes or points of where capital is really circulating through. So there's a kind of compositional question there yeah. as well about the movement of the squares, which doesn't take away the kind of power of those original moments. But as a long-term strategy, capital continued, right? And I guess the the other side of that is, it, you know, which is what people experienced everywhere, even in the very smaller attempts in, in Australia, it's quite hard to build a viable counter-society in a city square. Yeah, 
you know, so you you like the they begin to deteriorate through time because they're not actually where you live, right? And they're not actually connected with um, the other patterns of social reproduction that are necessary for a viable and desirable life. So it doesn't take long for, um, I guess, like ideologists of, of capital to say, well, what do you want? You want this system or you want to be in a bunch of smelly tents? Yeah. I mean, I think we shouldn't be... I mean, like, first off, it, it, the, like that, the, the idea that, like, that is not, that is not where our, our ability to disrupt cap, the, the flows of capital, like the city square is not it. That's one of the sort of spurs towards thinking about the social strike, you know, and, and there's lots of talk about logistics, etc. and like, you know. Which, which some of the occupiers moved towards. Yeah, right? of course, yeah, so. like Oakland did. They were sort of like exemplary and, you know, blockading the port, etc. Um, but I would also say that, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of of these sort of like um, what you might think of as enclaves. So Jameson talks about, Frederick Jameson talks about enclaves. Oh, in fact, in, like in reference to sci-fi and stuff, is this, you know, the, the, the idea of like a, a space in which life operates to a different rhythm or a different pace and a different logic than the logic that you normally Existing, you know, so for all of our, my critiques of climate hopping, you know, that's one of the that's one of the functions that those those camps, the, you know, the camps, that's one of the functions that they fulfil. Yeah, that's really I, fair. Yeah, yeah. Even even like it's easy for us now to kind of be maybe dismissive of the big anti-summit protests during the ultra globalization movement, but they were also some of the best days of my life. They <laughs> yeah, my yeah. Life. yeah, totally. But I mean, we could, we could just be totally hostile to those experiences and still recognize they play an extremely important role in making everything's possible. So for instance, when the, when the, when the Soviet union collapsed, you know, uh, you know, I, I was a young anarchist and I thought, right, oh great, it's our turn now. Um, but you know, uh, the collapse of, of, of the Soviet union as an, as an, ex- as the, as to open up the very idea that there could be you know a different form of social and economic order i don't know how different it was but even that that opening up the very idea of that you know opens up space to think differently you know it's a difference between you know if you're in a if you're in a society which is completely dominated by a religion say uk in the middle ages and then you come across other people who have a different religion right you know that opens up the space to think oh well you know, perhaps uh, we could put our religion into doubt, you know, you know what I mean? That sort of analogy I think we'd have. And I think, you know, yeah, you could sort of think of enclaves like, like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember where I was going with that though. I think we were talking about the shift from kind of horizontalism to yeah. the electoral turn and then yeah. how how communists relate to that. Now, yeah. I, I guess like one of the things you, really early on when we were chatting, you were talking about changing in people's perspective. Yeah. And one of the things, the terms you're uh, associated with is the term of acid Corbynism, uh, varying on Mark Fisher's acid com- communism, which yeah. is an attempt to kind of think these things through, right? Well, look, uh, so me and a friend, Nadia Idol, who is also in Plan C, we've, we've been doing these um, consciousness raising workshops, which we call building acid communism workshops. We're doing one in Leeds on on the weekend at this, you know, left, left-wing NGO sort of summit. And they're basically just... They're, they're basically just people getting together. We ask them questions like, you know, when were you last bored? Um, you know, when did you last feel totally free from work, etc. You know, these sort of questions. People discuss them in small groups and they seem to have a, like a powerful effect. Do you know what I mean? I've got a theory that that sort of, that, that sort of, that was basically what was going on in all of the general assemblies. 
like the general assemblies of the of the 2011 moment probably weren't very good for making decisions i don't think many decisions were made through them right but they were points where people just stood up and testified about their own lives and like started to recognize you know a commonality of problems a commonality of of difficulties uh, you know and when problems are common they can't be an individual failing they automatically must have a structural cause do you know what i mean uh, yeah so we call them these we're calling yeah. these acid communism and it's because um so that comes out of mark fisher's um uh, uh, never finished book acid communism and mark was in plan c um and was quite taken with this idea of, of consciousness raising uh, mm. uh, but i think the other thing i took from mark was this idea that like this this really big sort of periodization which was you know there was all sorts of potentials in the 1970s all sorts of experiments with different ways of living and they were foreclosed you know it, it, yeah. it, through the 80s etc and like it first of all it started off with you're right unemployment militarization of policing then it became you know in the 1980s you had um uh you know inducements to, to take on a certain form of life primarily home ownership um you know but as they, as you go into the 1990s you get there is no alternative turns into the end of history you know there's it's almost as though you cannot think outside and that sort of like come crashing down in 2008 and then as the, the 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 sort of the implications of 2008 and like you know basically the 10 years of stagnation and crisis we've had since that point you know like that is the space in which things possibility can open up again and that's sort of like what the the acid communism thing is acid corbinism within that i wrote an article um i wrote an article called um acid corbinism is a gateway drug basically mm. <laughs> which is this, uh, the idea that like um you know this turn to electoral politics has got you know uh very radical potentials in it basically you know it's uh, it's you know the communism in acid communism is the communism is the real movement right which is marx in the, mm. ge in, in the german ideology he goes you know communism is not a state of affairs it's not a program it's not a state of affairs that you finally arrive at it's the real movement you know uh to negate the existing state of affairs, I can't. Oh God, I can't remember, believe I can't remember that. Abolish the state of the. I don't know. Yeah, I've yeah, quoted yeah, it all yeah. the time, and now I can't remember. <laughs> but, but abolish, the, you know, the but, real state of things yeah. or whatever it is. But you can sort of run that past this his his idea of the old mole, you know, of like you know, basically the old mole revolution keeps popping back up, right? It keeps popping back up, and it'll disappear, you know, it'll disappear, and it's almost not unthinkable, even though we did our absolute best to think it, Dave, it was almost unthinkable in the 1990s to think what revolutionary change would look like, uh, uh, you know, and then there it is, it pops up again, you know, in 2011, it raised its nose in 1999, <laughs> in the saddle, mm. but it basically pops up again in 2011, um, you know, and so, like one of the things that Mar Mar Marx also says in the 18th Brumaire goes on about, you know, um, you know, just at that moment where the old mole pops up, revolution's there. Like what happens is that revolutionaries just, they basically clothe themselves in the clothes of past generations of struggle. Do you know what I mean? I do. Uh, the, which is totally what happened in 2011. We popped up and basically everybody said, oh, I really like the clothes you were wearing in Seattle in 1999. Let me put them on <laughs> and we'll adopt your forms of organization. They didn't work. They weren't appropriate to the new thing but that's probably the way in which things have to work you know it's like a generational so, inheritance too. sort of thing 
Yeah. So the problem is how do we like how do we get at the actual problems of today? We've had to try on a whole series of clothes. I think Corbyn's suits are one of the clothes that people are trying on at the moment to to sign like you know work out what what you know what 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 is to be done you know what is the real problem facing us that that's one of the ways I see it so that's why I I was talking about acid corp, cor, corbinism yeah. as a gateway drug you know it basically opens up the possibility of of wider change so like on that point like what is it in say corbinism that that does that is it like the is it people coming together and discussing things or is it the actual potentiality of changing policy? Like what is it in Corbynism that you think has the potential to change what people think is yeah. possible? Like, like, so basically, so, so, you know, a, a lot of my, my older anarchist friends, you know, they, um, you know, they don't like me talking about acid Corbynism or anything like that. Um, and I, and I'd always say to them, look, look, um, you totally agree that like Adekalau becoming mayor of Barcelona was part of exactly the same thing, right? It's exactly, you know, it's, there's, it's not a coincidence that Corbynism happens just at the same time as, you know, the citizens' assemblies. So in Spain, I would be talking about acid Calauism. And like most of my anarchist friends would be totally bored with that, you know what I mean? Uh, it's just, it you know, uh, in Spain, what would you say? Acid Saundersism, probably acid um, AOC, um, AAOC, we'd call yeah. that. Um, do you know what I mean? It's like this is a globe. Yeah, this is not. A, it's not a global wave, but it's like an international wave of of extremely similar politics emerging uh, all around the world. Like that, they have different forms, different iterations because of like the the, the the sort of like political opportunity structures of particular countries. It's pure chance, just pure fluke that this happened via Corbyn. You know, it's pure fluke that he got late control of the Labour Party. Before that, in the UK, there was this thing called the Green Surge, where, like, you know, lots of people joined the Green yeah. Party and see if that was the avenue. There were attempts to repeat um, what was going on in Spain. You know, there's a group in London called Take Back the City who were going to do this sort of, you know, citizen's platform type of approach. Uh, but, it, but you know, it was sort of fortunate that, like, the in many ways it was fortunate that it linked up with people like Corbyn and John MacDonald in particular who come from a, a sort of who come from a basically a libertarian version of laborism a libertarian version of Benism which was around in the late 1970s you know uh, around the GLC etc and so you know John MacDonald talks about an in and against the state strategy right which is sort of like you know he's not, is he referencing the book or is that that language has fallen from the air. Uh, no, he's referencing that debates from the early 1970s. That's amazing. Oh, not the early 1970s. It's the late 1970s, early 80s, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's a John McDonnell uh, listed as a as a lead as a as an author of that <laughs> book. It's a different spelling, <laughs> so we, we... and of course Holloway was yeah, the yeah, writer yeah. of that book. See, it's, see, I guess like that's that's amazing, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But look, I can't. I get what you're saying, like to the level that you know, and I can see on a much smaller scale because I think the Australian experience, all of this, is really different from yeah. the rest of the global north. But you know, I can see a similar kind of thing happening with the right to the city campaign in Brisbane, with friends and comrades being involved in the South Brisbane Greens. But how do you deal with those kind of criticisms that say, well, that's all well and good that people are getting their their um, optimism up 
but the structural nature of capital and the state means that this project will will let them down that you know if maybe you can have like the the good trip of corbynism how do you account for like the effect of the bad trip of syriza or you yeah, know yeah. podemos you know exhausting themselves aren't these evidence that ultimately this strategy you know hits a wall and what it does is then demoralize people you know like there was a i was reading an article the other day i never can't pronounce his name properly like i think he's a uruguayan writer raul zabecki yeah and he was talking about you know the picoteros who were like you know really important to the imaginary of the ultra globalization movement and he says well look they they've disappeared because the kirshner government were able to recuperate them by you know involving them in in their project yeah but but dave dave even. first off that bollocks and we know it right <laughs> all right go for well, it. Well, well, look first off if i was going to be if i was going to give up politics because i was disappointed by a particular wave i'd have given up the first fucking wave i was involved in everything has failed <laughs> everything has failed and we're in a position that we're in a situation now where where if you do not think that revolutionary transition needs to happen in the next 20 years you're a fucking scientific dissident right that's the that's the face of it everything has failed and we have 20 years in order to try to avoid a sort of like climate change and fascist solutions to climate change becoming the most attractive mm. ones. Do you know what I mean? Social yeah, movements have fucking life cycles to them, right? And it's not, recuperation is only one of the ways in which they end. The other way they, they end is by exhaustion, right? 2011 was not recuperated. That was not what halted 2008. It was exhaustion and the inability to maintain, you know, autonomous structures while existing within capitalism which demands so much of your time do you know what i mean you know that yeah, attempt at like the, the idea that the picoteros would have just continued and grown in strength though if only the recuperated had, had gone away sorry but that's an alibi it's just an alibi like from the from the politics of the last century do you know what i mean just as, just as, you know, the fucking Leninists of the world will say, if only it wasn't for these bloody naive yeah. anarchists, it would have all been all right, you know. Those are two forms of left melancholy, right, attachments to failure. <laughs> um, yeah, they're not very materialist approaches, Yeah, are they? no, totally. So, like, you know, that's that's my problem with it is... So I, I was arguing with somebody about this the other day, and I was going, <laughs> I was going uh, you know, they were slagging off um, the the the... the electoral turn towards citizens platforms you know and saying look there are limitations to that to those to those movements i was going yeah all right yeah but you know so what should those militants have done in 2014 like what was the other what's the strategy that you think they should have followed which would have got them beyond where they are now like that's that's a problem that you can't answer you know it's like 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 ultra leftism is 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 easy because it's only critique it's only critique yeah. and then wait for purity to emerge from nowhere. Do you know what I mean? I actually think ultra-left positions, like I tend to think in, in, term, in the left in terms of like an ecology of different groups and tendencies who are doing different functions. Yeah. And if you can get, you know, if those functions work together, then you can have a really functioning ecology. And I think ultra-leftism is an important part of that because it's sort of like, it shows you how far you have moved do you know what i mean it shows you how far you've moved yeah. and it gives you a position to fall back to um you know if it all goes tits up <laughs> yeah that, that's one of, one of the things i thought was really interesting when the um that new you know the new ultra left alternative of jacobin in um the us the magazine commune was launched yeah the the way that they positioned themselves was you know we're a pole within a movement and yeah. that's very different from 
the ultra left language that I'm familiar with, which otherwise would say, well, the rest of the left, you're fucking enemies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so and, and that I think that shows something has shifted. But but I wanted to pull back, like, how do you account then for like what happened to Syriza? You know, you're you're talking about concrete strategy. You're in the UK. Yeah. You see this opportunity in Corbynism. People go, well, look at Syriza. It was a more radical organisation. There's a bigger left. There was a strike wave. Yeah. And they had a strategy through the state and they just fucked it with the, the standard machinery that we know global capitalism will use. Yeah. You know. I mean, they were probably in one of the weakest positions of, you know, any sort of, you know, they were probably in a, ve- in a very, very weak position, basically, because they were within the euro. So they don't have a central bank. You know, they, so the government can do very little it had very little leverage basically the only leverage it could have had was would have been a, like you know an international strike wave etc but that wasn't on the cards that wasn't available um you know basically yeah they were pretty much doomed from the beginning <laughs> partly because you know the eu schaubler etc they were just they were gonna fucking do anything they could to eliminate that government or bring it to heel uh so yeah, I, I'm no idea what they could have done in that situation. Like, it's it's horrible, isn't it? Like, how do you, how do you, what what do you do? You know, you have you have a chance to take power in a situation in which you're incredibly weak, and then you know, you, you know, horrible things will come out of it. It's, it's part, you know, part of the way I think about Stalinism. You know what I mean? It, yeah, it's okay. like like they were in a fucking terrible position, and yeah. they knew that in like you know, ten fifteen years, you know. The Nazis were going to go roll up and fucking kill or yeah. enslave them all. What the fuck do you do in that situation? It's horrible. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, well, you, you, you can't. You can't be in 1927 and go. Well, that didn't work out like the way we imagined it was going to work out. So we'll just throw it in and we'll try again in yeah. another 20 years. They needed a. You know, they basically that. needed the fucking. You know, they needed the German Revolution to win, basically. Yeah. And they were a bit no, fucked I, after I think, that. But... Like, that kind of stuff's haunting, right? Like, because, you know, you you don't know, like, what you do see is that in those moments, you don't know, right? Yeah. You you have to make that, that risk. And look, I, I, I always thought there was something, you know, really ridiculous, particularly in Australia, where we're talking about a really small anti-capitalist milieu where, you know, people are going, oh, if only Syriza would do this, yes, I know what they should do. It's like, well, you can't even get 15 people to your meeting. Yeah. What makes me, well, why do you think you, you can tell the, what the fate of Greece is? You don't even know what to do in your own life. Yeah. Um, but that that kind of you know that's I don't know if that's left melancholy or whatever, but it's a pretty like it's a pretty powerful argument though that the state appears to be the really powerful um, you know and I think that's also why people are, uh, are heading in electoralism in some ways is because they're looking for where power is yeah and you know this goes back to you know kind of Holloway you know we mentioned him before you know. Mm-hmm. And his work with with people in common sense and the like would, would make the argument that the state looks powerful, but it's not powerful. You know that at the and at the moment I see that like electoralism is leading to this kind of like fantasy of policy, where suddenly we're having all these debates over MMT and jobs guarantee and UBI mm. as if policy could solve it. And I think that's one of the dangers of this turn to the state is that it's making people think that's where power, or it's not making people. It can reinforce that illusion of like where this is where power lies but that's not where power lies that's actually part of the historical failure of reformism yeah. would you agree with that or do you think i'm totally offhand there uh, no no but i'm, I'm like so, so i think there's, there's two really really big problems which makes which makes the turn to the states understandable right the first one is, is like just the time limited nature of uh of climate change right you just 
really drastically reduces uh, the time available, not necessarily to abolish capitalism, but basically to break this form of capitalism that we have now in order to give us space, right? So, you know, the old um, Duruti quote about, you know, uh, the, 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 the ruling class will, you know, leave us in ruins, but we've, you know, but we don't care because we carry a new heart in our, a new yeah, world in nuts. our heart, etc., it's like, and so we'll rebuild the world from. Well, we don't have that fucking option anymore. Yeah, right. That's yeah, just that, not that's, that's, on the that's cards. That's nuts to think about now. Yeah, it's just not on the cards, basically. Um, but the other, the other problem is, you know, is that um, our, polit- our, our political imaginaries and our and, and the political frames we work in tend to be national frames. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you know, there was a reversion to the national after um, after two thousand and eight. You know partly because because of austerity etc austerity kicks in uh, and that so that you know the effects of this global international financial crisis the effects that you see are actually to do with re- reductions in state budgets etc and all this sort of stuff um which is why australia had a very different experience of it because you didn't really have a big crisis after 2008 um no in, in fact we had a couple of years of continual growth yeah China. yeah yeah totally yeah yeah. And it's it's only it's actually interesting because it's owned like that. You know, you were talking before about a quite a materialist reading of what is possible in a situation and I think it's only actually right now in Australia as like accumulation is beginning to falter. Yeah. That the ice oh it's such a Trotskyist line, isn't it? The ice is cracking. Um and that there's the possibility of something emerging. So I think this kind of debate now is really relevant in Australia because people are thinking about strategy. Right, yeah. And and, and how to re- how to relate to it. But but I think um, yeah I'd still like to you know I'd still like to hear more about how you think like um, you can like you can respond to the question of power here mm-hmm. if the state doesn't hold power like you know Corbyn wins yeah the social movements are, are you know thriving you've written a really interesting thing recently about um, public common partnerships. You know, things are beginning to be made common. You know, there's an attack and accumulation. Obviously, the state will respond. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Or capital will respond. I think those are two separate problems. So, yeah, the problem, the problem, the series of problem is this, right? What do you do when they turn off the ATMs? <laughs> right. That's what they, they, you know, what do they, what do you do when they, when international finance turns off the, like, I, I think that's less of a problem for the UK because it's in a very different situation. It's not a, it's not a neat euro. It's got a central bank. You know, the, the sort of the, the thinking of 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 capitalist elites or at least sections of them are moving in a direction which makes, you know, uh, m- makes some sort of social democracy, of a mild form, relatively viable. I think. Uh, I mean, mm. certainly not. Um, assured, <laughs> but and I think that's the sort of the Corbyn leadership sort of strategy is to sort of say, look, you know, we're going to do mild things. This is, in fact, we're saving capitalism for you, etc. And I think they've got this like their their strategy for like how do you institute something more than that is this in and against the state thing. So it's this the core of like a Corbynite political economy would be institutional reform, basically. As an article by Joe Gwynnon and Martin O'Neill called the institutional turn. And what they mean is like the turn towards institutional reform in, in thinking about socialist strategy. Uh, and so me and uh, a comrade Bertie Russell wrote a sort of response to that um, in which we proposed public commons partnerships 
uh, you know, as a sort of response or a sort of mirroring of the public-private partnerships, which were like these PFI schemes in which sections of the state get um, taken out of the state and run by run or financed by um private industry you know there's a there's a reason to do that and the reason the reason neoliberals did that was to you know their strategy was their strategy was to reform the neoliberal strategy is to reform institutions the governance of institutions in order to train people to adopt a certain subjectivity right which is like homo economicus right so you set up internal markets so that you're competing with the people that you're working with so you no longer see those people you're working with as you know potential allies in collectivity. You see them as a problem that you have to overcome, right? You're in competition with them. You know, it's a form of like subjective training, right? That's one way in which neoliberalism operates. Right? And you know, as people's training uh, ways of, of of thinking about the world, thinking about the world, uh, you know, as uh, in, in which they are individuals facing the world's problems alone, you know, in a competitive environment with everybody else, that influences your the way you see politics. The other way in which you sort of protect, make the make neoliberalism, insulate ne neoliberalism from pressure from below, is to just to take more and more functions that you previously were run by the state, and hand them over to private or quasi-private institutions, right? So like outsourcing. Do you, do you have do you have do you have social impact bonds in the U.S.? Yeah, we do actually. Yeah, 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 we do. It's amazing, right? Like how how you can financialize, you know, the provision yeah. of homeless shelters. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and, uh, but also like you know, lots of governance is taken out of. So you have like quangos, mm. and then you have sort of like you know, who who disciplines who disciplines um, nations? You know, it's these. Um, Oh God! It's the words gone from my head now. These rating agencies, standards and pores and stuff like that. You know, these are private companies, completely corrupt. You know, there's no democratic accountability, no democratic oversight of them, which means that it's very hard to change it back. So our thing was this. But they have a real, they have a real power. Yeah, yeah, right? very like real. That's, yeah. that, that, that's the other thing too. Yeah. You know, if they can affect the rate that a state can borrow yeah. at, that really matters. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the big things that fucked Syriza. You know. And of course, you know, what can you do if you're a national government in that state? You, how do you get at standard and poor? It's a very difficult problem. So our, our proposal was this. And so it's like a directional demand and perhaps also a non-reformist reform. You know, when we do institutional reform, what we should be trying to do is to establish, to move, to, to give a direction of travel for institutional reform amongst a sort of socialist government. Right? A direction of travel would be towards the commons. That would be the the, the position at which um, the the direction in which we're going, you, you want you, you we got, want to move to to massively expand the common sector, right? So that would be common, you know, housing co-ops, um, you know, um, workers co-ops, you know, uh, common land trusts, all sorts of things like this. And our, and our reasoning was was twofold, right? We want to undo what the things that neoliberalism did. And set the set the potential for 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 for, for further things. So our, our reasoning was this: was that if you know marketized management is a, it represents a training in adopting a neoliberal subjectivity, right? Uh, participation in commons operates as like a training in democracy, right? It trains you to be able to to, to increases your capacities to be able to you know cooperate with others in order to ha to develop collective solutions, etc. The other thing it does is it takes functions which are previously either in private or public hands and it puts them in common hands and puts them beyond the realm of 
being easily undone, right? So it sort of like future proofs them against, um, you know, the loss of power by, of, of, a, of a Corbyn government. You know, perhaps Corbyn gets two two electoral turns in, in power and then you get, you know, who knows how this works out. Then you get the Conservatives back in. They want to just immediately re undo those things. So it's a way of sort of like, you know, future-proofing those sorts of things. But from our point of view, it's that thing of, we were trying to think about how how a within and against the state strategy could be brought into a position of non-contradiction with a parallel and against the state strategy, right? So like, you know, trying to set up autonomous institutions which address social reproduction, right? Trying to build sort of like a dual power sort of situation. Um, how those two things could be brought into into uh, into parallel with each other. So it's not by electoralism alone then, right? Like there's, this is a relationship between an electoral engagement and the continuation of social movements. Yeah, so basically it would be you'd use the state to um, create the conditions for, you know, use the state to undo the state is like an in and against the state strategy. You know, that would only ever get any possibility of operation um, with, you know, if if there was pressure from the left, pressure from the outside, that's a big problem that Corbyn faces at the moment is that there isn't enough pressure from, you know, autonomous social movements, etc. But the weird thing so is, Dave, you... the weird thing is that, like, so basically, I mean, so basically this comes out of, like, municipal policy in the UK and there's this council called Preston Council. There's this, it's called the Community Wealth Build and they're really experimental of, they're trying to solve, like, lots of problems of how you would, how would you, at the minute they're trying to think through all of the problems of how would you double the cooperative sector in Preston's economy. Preston, you know, a, a small town in Northern England, um, you know, deindustrialized, uh, And so they're setting up all of these, you know, well, the, the reason co-ops can't, can't expand is because they can't get financing. So they're setting up a, a bank to set to finance co-ops, except, you know, they're trying to think through these sort of problems. It was, a, so we've been in a sort of debate with these, with these people on the sort of like left of Labour, and their reception is incredibly. You know, we're basically you're pushing against an open door. You know, the leader of Preston Council comes up when he does his talk about you know his his thing and says, you know, we have twenty years to move beyond capitalist society, and that's what we're that's what we're aiming to do at Preston Council. Uh, and as, yeah, it, as it turns out, like Preston is like the most improved city in England. You know, over the last two years. Under all sorts of measures, probably dodgy measures, but you know, measures that um, that are their measures, not our measures. If you know, yeah. So I guess it's sort of an. It, we found it very interesting just to dabble our toes in that and think, try and think through that in terms of the problem of working class autonomy. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I do. So, so that the big prop, like, the big problem with like welfareism and like you know, Morrisonian, <laughs> Morrisonian. Uh, municipalism which is like you know sort of like top-down municipalism etc and the big problem with like the nationalization of the post-war period was you know they didn't change any of the governance structure they didn't change how, how things were managed they didn't democratize any of those things do you know what i mean so it made them reversible but also had no it didn't you know it basically developed a, a, a situation of dependency and patronage mm. rather than autonomy uh, so and like you know people are really genuinely trying to think about how you do that in a different sort of way yeah, and I, I think, you know, part of the response to how do you avoid the, what you do when the ATMs are turned off, yeah. in, in my mind, that's where any of the stuff around commons or communisation or the commune or whatever, 
like really matters because the size of the capacity that exists of people to be able to reproduce their lives outside of the commodity form then becomes really practical right and like all those things that you know when people were thinking about being a bit more spiky were dismissed as kind of hippie projects suddenly become crucially important right like yeah. the tents that the people do now even smaller attempts to to try to reproduce their lives outside the commodity form, they're crucial to allow any of this to have a, a long-term viability, and probably have a some kind of rhythm as you know, as some you know, as some kind of relationship between social struggles, electoral projects, and construction of alternatives. There's got to be some kind of dynamic, some kind of rhyme between them. Yeah, resonance. That's the Deleuzean term. Isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if it's very yeah. Deleuzean, but yeah, yeah, resonance. Yeah, no, but it's, it, I think it's a good one. Yeah, because it basically. It's, because the thing with resonance is it doesn't necessarily have to have formal links. That's why I quite like this sort of like ecology idea of like, you know, you don't have to have formal links. You could even hate the other people in the ecology, <laughs> but you fulfill functions which each, which we all, which each part, party needs. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it's not a formal, co not necessarily a formal coalition building thing. It's like recognizing the functions that different different sectors are, are playing but i think you're really right about this like i've thought about it in terms of greece and like you know so so what you have to remember about greece was um the oxy referendum you know which was um you know that basically the eu and the ecb caused a run on the banks shut the banks shut the atms right uh, and the whole point of that is to create a feeling of shock and um you know, shock so that you'll just accept what's going on and the oxy referendum was you know they said no you know we will we you know we're not going to go along with that you know the population wasn't shocked the government then found itself in a position where it didn't have much option you know it had to it had, i either had to go out of the euro which would have been a, a huge uh economic shock or so basically the way i think about like part of the reason you know the the sort of autonomous infrastructure in, in in greece probably bigger than you know anywhere else in the world you know self self-organized clinics self-organized supermarkets etc etc they act as sort of shock absorbers do you know what i mean they're shock absorbers mm. which allow people which don't transmit the full shock of of a crisis to the population and make them like what do you do in a, in a when you when, when you're shocked basically you sort of lose the ability to you know respond collectively you know what i mean like panic is like panic is is um uh, when a crowd is panicked they're not collective they're it's all about individual preservation to such a degree that you know often panic will cause the individual to do things which would put them in even more danger but you know what i mean it's that that's what shock's about yeah. shock is about breaking collectivity and the ability to collective thinking and shock absorbers allow you to do, you know, absorb the crises and shocks which you'll come across in any process of transformation. Well, look, I guess the, the the critique of that could be though it was then the the collapse the collapse of will on the Syriza government that was the the profound shock, you know, that people could could deal with the threats from the ECB, but it was that collapse of um, well, look, the, the Syriza government's not going through after the results of the oxy referendum then contributes to a demoralization but i don't know yeah don't yeah know it does yeah yeah but like if, which is part of, i guess is but part that's of the, that, but that's the trotskyist that's the trotskyist um place of safety they retreat to right uh, you know ours is like recuperation that's our traditional place where we mm. retreat to and betrayal is the great um 
Yeah, like, totally. Let's not think about the real problem and let's just say the problem was betrayal or lack of will. Yeah. It's like lack of will to do what? That is the problem. That is mm. a real problem. What should they have done? Like perhaps they should have gone out of the euro, right? Um, but but also it's not just the state; it's the people themselves, right? Yeah. You know, like that, that's the more challenge. Like it's the same thing when you're talking about sixty-eight. You know, one of the difficult things is well, why did all these people go through this strike wave and still listen to the French Communist Party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you know, if if the French Communist Party was so crap, why weren't they all listening to Guy Debord? Yeah. You know, like so, like your response can't be that they're morons because our entire approach is based on the idea that people are not morons that they can run their own lives and they think and debate discuss so it's a it's a really yeah. difficult difficult question you know that and it and i think it comes down to it at some point is that it's like these projects seem more real and more viable in people's lives than kind of the kind of revolutionary theory of, of small groups of friends and comrades right and and in in those moments, that's why they're able to still hold people. Not you know, it's not a tr- it's not a trick. It's that the other the the alternative world communism doesn't appear real enough or vibrant enough, or is not pulling people in that direction. Yeah, oh, I don't know. Maybe that's bullshit. no, no, no. I mean, but yeah, I mean, no, people aren't morons. They and they, you know, you have you, there are different processes in which people people can see that their interests are being. You know, basically, we all have a, a whole variety of, of potential ways we could move. A whole type, potential, a variety of potential interests, and we choose interests according to what seems like a viable future. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I think that's the that, like I've just written this book, Generation Left, and its opening gambit is about like what's going on. Like, so basically, age is one of the biggest determinants in political opinion and voting patterns. You know, across the UK, US, most of Western that's really Europe. Interesting. And it's incredibly fast and incredibly deep thing, you know. Uh, it basically, has come along well, since about 2014. What do you think is the basis for that? Well, you have to buy the book and find out. No, no, I'll, tell, I'll give you a little. <laughs> I'll give you a little glimpse. I'll give you a glimpse now. No, but so basically, one of I mean, the the, the most obvious thing is that um, is that um, like in, economic interests have become separated, right? So, the older generations, because they hold assets, primarily housing. You know, not all of the older generation, but you know, in the UK, seventy-five percent of over sixty-fives hold own their own home. But also, they have pensions, which are you know basically tied to the performance of stock markets. You know, um, they're in the interests of older generations have been sort of tied to finance, basically, and all policy since two thousand and eight has been about propping up finance. We've just given a fucking ocean of free money to finance, and by and so that's propped up asset prices, which has benefited older populations. You know, younger people, it's had the complete opposite effect. And, you know, younger people are tied into debt relations. There's no outside to it, but those debt relations are not now felt as though they're going to lead to a better future. That's not possible. They're just felt as like intrusion and like limitation rather than, do you know what I mean? So like basically, yeah, no, it's, like, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, so basically, that's material yeah, yeah. interest, right? That's material interest. Yeah. And so, like, for older people, that you know, the, 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 the future, in fact, for older people in the UK in particular, because state funding of, of um, elder care has been rolled back so much, high house prices are basically the way that, they, that most people see as, like, the guarantee that they will get elder care in old age, basically. That's why they're so desperate to, 
to keep it whereas for younger people you know financialization is not a route to a better future which is why they're open to a different different futures do you know what i mean yeah. but but people so choose we're, their we're material in... interest depending on whether there's a viable future attached to it Um, and look, it's one. Of, it's, I found this really interesting because I think this is one of these conversations where I can't. Where, where if I squint, I can kind of see this strategy, right? Mm-hmm. This this combination between engaging in this electoral turn, struggling in social movements, building alternative spaces, you know, working to articulate and develop, you know, commons in the here and now, and they have a relationship. But one of the key words you've used all the time is is the idea of strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And at the moment, we're really talking from like a, a top-down, bird's-eye kind of view. As, you know, communists in small groups or by themselves or whatever, what does strategy for, for, you know, for communists mean in this moment? So not the big picture or the chess pieces on the board, but the far more specific strategies of friends and comrades. I'm not sure I totally understand that, but the way I understand strategy is it's not necessarily, you know, um, it's not necessarily, you know, the position of God looking down over all of the pieces, yeah. right? It's strategy just means far-sightedness, or trying to look far, you know. Well, we look far well, from where we are. Like, that's what the that's what that's what yeah. communism, the real movement, means. Is like, you know, we're yeah. situated in these things. We can't see what's possible. We what we see is possible is, you know. Uh, dictated by the position that we're in at the moment you know we can't we can see yeah. so far but we can't see much, any further than that you know we can't see over the next rise you know the horizon we can see is not that's not the limit of possibility do you know what i mean okay so i, I guess i guess what what i would to rephrase it then is like in this conjuncture what do you think yourself and plan c should be doing to push things in the right direction well or to contribute to things going in the right direction push things is a bit trotskyist again isn't it yeah, I, I, it's fine to push things, I think. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Uh, when, uh, so, so, like, you know, I think Plan C should be should not be engaged in electoral politics, right? I think Plan C, it should be, you know, it should be in a, uh, focusing on on the, the bit that's really missing in the UK ecology of the left, which is autonomous social movements. Uh, and so one of the... So in Leeds, you know, there's a there's a women's strike on on Friday. They have a project we're involved in in, in Leeds Plan C. We're developing an Acorn Group, which is like a a, a tenants tenants union. It's basically an anti-poverty union, but it mainly focuses on 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 renters in the UK. And and it's basically, you know, it's that it's a model. I'm not completely happy with it, but you know, it's an interesting model to experiment with. It's a model that basically it's all about developing organisers within working class communities basically uh, uh you know and that's desperately what 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 is desperately needed is you know to develop the level of organization in in you know ordinary working class communities and uh, so that's what i think plan c should be doing what should other people be doing like there isn't a there isn't one strategy that everybody should be doing at the same time right you know so i've like um there's lots of comrades who are so in, in leeds they have a have a group there's a momentum group in leeds uh, you know, they've set up a social reproduction group in Leeds, Momentum, to so that the male members can, you know, do the cooking, organise childcare. They're doing the cooking and organising childcare and attending to those, those sorts of uh, uh, social reproduction problems for the women's strike on Friday. Right, it's a sort of support role. Uh, there's all sorts of like public education things going on. There's the, the World Transformed 
uh, it's probably the sort of like it's a, it's a festival that happens every year around the Labour Party conference, but it's probably the point at which which is most movementist, if you if you know what I mean, you know, and they're developing strategies to try to develop a sort of parallel to Labour Party structures to develop sort of like political education, you know, strategizing uh, uh, things, etc. So a couple of us in, three of us in Plan C developed this game called the Social Strike Game. Uh, in which you know you, we give you scenarios basically, and then you have to work out what to do with them, etc. And it's to try to develop sort of strategic thinking. You know, we've been doing them around around it. We're going down in a couple of weeks to Bristol for a Bristol Transformed, which will be organised by the Labour Party, and they want us to run a social strike strategy game. That's mind blowing. Yeah, so it's like you know, there's all sorts of stuff you can be doing. Uh, there isn't. I don't think there is a strategy. So, so what? The only other thing I'd say about this whole thing is. Like the way I, the way I see the the conjuncture is, you know, we are coming out of a period, out of the neoliberal period, and we're trying to get at the problem of now. Do you know what I mean? It's pr- it's a problem for me. I've, I've my politics developed in a different era. Do you know what I mean? I've got to unlearn a whole loads of ha- of habits and ways of thinking. You know, I've got to take off a whole load of old clothes <laughs> that uh, that I've put on. You know, I put on when I first got into politics. I put on the clothes of 1968 you know what i mean probably have yeah. to take those clothes off and try and get out you know what is what 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 is the what are the things which are which are limiting people's lives this now? is worrying this is this is worrying here i haven't changed my fashion sense in about 25 years <laughs> yeah i'm not talking about literal clothes <laughs> although yeah. no no that's that that's uh, that's that's really that's really interesting look is there anything that we've we've missed that you'd like to to mention or talk about that you think is important to this understanding of, of acid communism and directional demands? I, I probably just want to, to, to emphasise, you know, my whole picture of how I see the world at the moment is that we're in the middle of this big crisis period. I, and it's one of these, like, economic crisis periods, like the 1930s and 1970s, in which you can have a new iteration of capitalism come out, a new settlement come out, come out of this. The problem with that is that it's also... It's also got into resonance if you like with another problem another crisis which operates at a much longer scale and that's the climate crisis you know and these two things present us with like this like i said earlier you know where we need change on on a level of so so one of my big my one of the problems that basically i've always tried to think about is the problem of revolutionary transition right which is you know how do we enter a process of transformation which will also include transforming us into people very different from ourselves and you know yeah that that's a that's a big problem that you you have to think through but that's the problem of all that everybody is facing at the moment yeah uh that doesn't mean that like revolutionary transition will look like something like russia in 1917 it's almost impossible that that will be the case you know Probably not or, like, or even it'll be. It won't look like 1968 either. It won't day. look like 1999. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I find hard to get out of my head is this idea that you know that the revolution is one day. You know yeah. that you've got capitalism, then this big event happens, and then socialism starts, and or, or whatever. But to see the kind of time of transformation as being far more, I think Holloway uses the term interstitial, right? Yeah. That, you know, that those processes are already developing and gestating right now. And even if we do have big days, 
they will only be part of how those trajectories unfold in really complicated ways yeah. with, with a forward, back and sideways movement. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. Like they, and also, it may not look like what we think it would look like, Dave. Like I, I think yeah, it's totally. highly possible, actually, that that when we look back on history, we will see we will see the last couple of weeks as like a really big transitional moment where yeah. politics change, and it, it's because of what's happening in the U.S. about around uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and like you know with the shift, the discussion of the Green New Deal, and you can see sort of like yeah. you can see sort of like certain neo, like left neoliberals sort of sort of recognizing that they were wrong, they've been mm. wrong, and that the lead now has to come from the left is what this this. Yeah. guy said the other day and you know that those and again, those sorts of shifts sometimes don't look like moments of excess they sometimes look like yeah. you know basically the limits of people's sense making break because you, and, and then they you know they, they throw their hands up you know something something's changed on a, on a sort of like like the ruling class is cracking basically <laughs> do you know what i mean now that's that's that always is part of revolutionary change you know where the ruling class loses its faith in its in itself I mean, you, I don't know how much you follow all of this sort of like utter insanity around um, Corbyn uh, in the media around here. Uh, but like you can totally see that like the, this like centrism has got to a pitch of hysteria and extremism, basically, that is, is just unbelievable. I mean, we got reported on a weekend that Corbyn got egged. All right, so I like somebody throw an egg at, at someone, but in fact he got punched. He got punched to the ground by a far right activist, and it was just, it's just not reported at all. It's quite amazing. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And um, and it was at, it was at a mosque where there was a, a, like a right wing terrorist killed one person, mm. injured ten people two years ago, and that terrorist had set out. I mean, it was a lone wolf guy, but he'd set out to kill Corbyn if mm. he could find him. You know, <laughs> it's like. Like, yeah, this is utterly well, fucking I, I, insane. That, but it's yeah. it's a, a level of pitch where you think like, like yeah. if this is not something. This is not like they're not being strategic. The centre at the moment, it is much more like an existential fucking cry of look, we are real, like, we are real, we are real, yeah. uh, and because it's like you know the, the the world is fading away. I'm sort of paraphrasing, um, yeah. <laughs> paraphrasing William Burroughs there, but like you know, it's it's something you can see that like that that. Yeah, the ruling class is cracking at, to a certain level. By they're all losing sorts their of minds, stuff. Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's like that, that. That that gets kind of projected here in Australia, where there is any, like the like everything in Australia is far more. I guess there's kind of a, a sul at the moment. It's like a sullen rejection of the political status quo. It doesn't really manifest itself in in, in things like we've seen overseas. Yeah. But there's like a you know, just a very common, cynical rejection of politics, and, you know, an anti-political um, desire, yeah. if you will. And there, there's a, there is a real panic about that if you read, like, the mainstream press and attempt to to understand where that, where that comes from. And, of course, we're Australia in our colonial history. Of course, they look to the UK and draw from those debates. And so there is a this freak-out uh, about Corbyn that's replayed here, mm. which is always a combination of, like... Um, he, he's an impossible character. Of course, he couldn't win. Oh my God! Imagine how terrible it would be if he won. Yeah, you know, is the is the two lines, and also seeing that there's nothing fundamentally different between, say, Corbyn and Trump, and um, you know, and and Bolsonaro or anyone yeah, who's yeah. seen as being outside kind of the centrist middle is seen as the same. Yeah, yeah. 
Actually, there's there's one thing I did want to ask you, which we haven't talked about, which is a bit from left field. Um, in terms of the social strike stuff, do you think what's going on in France applies to the social strike? Oh, yeah, absolutely, definitely. The social yeah. strike applies to what's going on in France. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even even in that, you know, obviously that you know they're their target in logistical, you know, roundabouts is one of the places that they occupy, etc. Yeah, it definitely is a, or it fits in that whole sort of like sphere of the social strike. Like France is very strange though, because basically mm. France didn't France didn't have a 2011, right? So if you think about this huge wave that crosses, even Brit, even the UK had a 2011, it wasn't huge, but we had a student movement and then we had Occupy. Didn't touch France at all. In part, I think it's because they had the anti-CPE protests. Yeah. Uh, which, I th- were they 2008 or 2006? I can't quite remember. But the- I, th- was it, I think there was something in 2006 and in Yeah, I think you're right, there's actually, a, yeah. Good, there's a good article in, in one of the salvages about this kind of evolution over the last yeah. 10 or 15 years. Yeah. So they so they're out of sync with the rest of, you know, with our rest of rest of Europe and the yeah. rest of the UK in some sorts of ways, uh, yeah. So I think it's re- it's really interesting what's going on in, in in France. Like that's a different direction that struggle could go in. I think, but like you know, what what where where will it lead that that thing? I think it's like like I can, you can sort of see that Macron is cracking, right? He started talking about like a different social Europe and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay, but but where does and that lead Macron, you? That means Macron that that means goal. that reduces that whole yellow vest thing to militant lobbying, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah, which which I don't think that's that's all it is. And it's no, also no, interesting in the sense of our earlier part of our conversation about where it's happening. It's you know like it's the people coming into the city yeah. centre, but they're also you know taking over all those roundabouts and yeah. you know the the question of geography, how it's played out there is really yeah, yeah. super interesting yeah. as well. And also the kind of confusion of it right like you know the the right can respond to it the left can respond to it people themselves are developing their own ideas also you know you talk about history and clothes well they've they seem to be choosing the clothes of is it 1791 of the french revolution is the 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 clothing that they're picking up yeah fascinating stuff yeah yeah i mean that so that what makes it um remarkable is it's, it's longevity do you know what i mean but in, in some ways that yeah incredible yeah, right but that in some ways that's that's because you know there is no out for anybody <laughs> you know what i mean as in macron's not going to give up um but there's no you know yeah so but there's no addressing the problems i think you know he's not gonna anyway i don't know but yeah we'll have to see how how, how it develops but like so the other interesting Indeed. thing about it is it just hasn't taken on the forms of uh of the 2011 you know they had Nuit Debout which took on the directly you know the occupations of the squares mm. and all of that whereas there's none of this there's none of that in in the yellow vest or very little of it as far as I can see yeah but, yeah yeah fascinating yep. all right Keir thank you so much that's that's been re- that's been really great yeah and I enjoyed um, that that's good if if, if people uh, want to uh, you know do you have a social media presence that you encourage people to to follow to, so they can find out about your writing and the like. Yeah, I'm I'm at Kia Milburn on Twitter, K E I R M I L B U R N. You can follow me there. Um, oh yeah, I've got yeah, I've nice. got a book, Generation Left coming out on March the 29th in, in the UK. March the 29th. Look, I don't know what what about Australia. But yeah, look, I, I'm definitely gonna buy a copy. So great, that's one down. Know, maybe after. I <laughs> 
maybe after I give it a read, we can do a like a generation left specific episode if you want. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think I've done all my A grade material, but I'll develop some more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be like the B side. Yeah, B side. All right, they're often the more more interesting tracks. Yeah, we didn't even talk about like yeah, we didn't even talk about all the interesting stuff that uh, that um, the free associate uh, free association talk about with pop culture, right? And the importance of David Bowie and rock and roll to yeah to. Yeah, to yeah. your theorization so there's plenty more stuff to talk yeah, about yeah. in the future great. yeah let's do it again all right key yep. all right key well thanks for that you enjoy the rest of your yeah, day great nice one see you later dave all right see you later you've been listening to living the dream Sisters, we don't need that fascist group thing.